Ben Stiller is a noted writer, director, and performer of Hollywood comedies, who's headlined such blockbuster hits as The Something About Mary, Zoolander, and Tropic Thunder. He's not necessarily the first name to spring to mind when thinking about horror movies, yet in 2008, he and his business partner Stuart Kornfeld produced The Ruins, a rarely seen yet stunningly effective horror film. It's a film as relentless as it is bleak. It's filled with dread and constantly rising tension. It's a film that gets under your skin, in the case of its protagonists, quite literally so. Hi, my name's Grant Watson. I'm reading out We're Being Kept Here to Die, The Making of The Ruins, a 2008 film directed by Carter Smith. If you want to read the original essay, you can find that at fictionmachine.com. Stiller and Kornfeld were both fans of the author Scott Smith, whose 1993 novel A Simple Plan had been adapted into a widely acclaimed 1999 thriller by the director Sam Raimi. And when they were given the opportunity to read an advanced copy of Smith's latest thriller, The Ruins, they immediately took the property to DreamWorks Pictures and suggested that they develop it into a feature film. Smith's new novel followed four young American tourists, who, with three Greek travellers and one German backpacker, head into the Mexican jungle to meet up with the German's archaeologist brother, who's on a dig at an ancient temple. Once there, the group find themselves isolated on top of a hill by a group of armed villagers, and whatever lies within the hill is starting to hunt them down. DreamWorks optioned the ruins and hired Smith to adapt his own novel for the screen, something he'd already done with a simple plan. Chris Bender was attached by the studio to co-produce. He had previously produced or co-produced a string of hit Hollywood pictures, including American Pie, The Butterfly Effect, The Ring 2, and A History of Violence. To direct the film, DreamWorks selected Carter Smith, an up-and-coming filmmaker whose award-winning short film Bug Crush had demonstrated a remarkable flair for unsettling horror. Carter Smith said... I'd always been a fan of Scott Smith's book A Simple Plan and was in fact reading The Ruins when DreamWorks called and said they'd like me to look at the script. It was such a treat because the ultimate resource for a filmmaker is a wonderfully written script and this one was fantastic. The Ruins was greenlit for production with Smith directing on a budget of approximately $22 million. The project was announced for the press in February 2007 with filming scheduled to commence that May. Smith said... One of the things that was so interesting to me about the characters was that they start out as these very sexy, very normal, very real kids, but by the end of the film they're just ravaged, destroyed, they've turned into monsters. Smith was keen to ensure that the actors cast in the film would understand The Ruins was a considerably more realistic, gritty sort of horror film than the standard Hollywood slasher flick. To this end, actors under consideration were not only sent a copy of Scott Smith's screenplay, but also a DVD of Carter's short film Bug Crush. In the role of Amy, Smith cast Jenna Malone. The 23-year-old actress had most famously played Gretchen Ross in Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko, but had also performed in Life as a House, The United States of Leland, and Into the Wild. For an actress best known for small independent features, an early role as the young Jodie Foster in Contact notwithstanding, The Ruins presented a significant change of genre. Malone explained, Well, for me, it always starts with the material, and it was a really interesting script. There was very little dialogue. It was very humanistic and naturalistic and very creepy and fucked up and suspenseful and talking about really abstract things about human nature in a really subtle and interesting way. In a separate interview, Malone said, What I really liked about The Ruins, and what I felt set it apart, is there's no evil character. There's no bad guy, no guy with a gun that's shooting up and you've got to watch out behind the shadows. Laura Ramsey played best friend Stacy. She was best known for starring in the 2006 Rennie Harlan thriller The Covenant. Jonathan Tucker played the role of Jeff, Amy's boyfriend. When shooting commenced, Tucker had recently completed work on The Black Donnellys, an ill-fated TV drama created by Oscar winner Paul Haggis. Sean Ashmore played Stacy's boyfriend Eric. Successful child actor like Jenna Malone, Ashmore had played the mutant superhero Iceman in the hugely successful X-Men films from 20th Century Fox. Joe Anderson rounded out the lead cast as Matthias, the German backpacker whose impulsive suggestion to visit his brother in the jungle sets the film in motion. 
Actually born in England, Anderson had co-starred in a number of successful films, like Copying Beethoven, Becoming Jane, Across the Universe and Control. Some changes were made in the transition from book to film. The hill on which the story took place was changed to a full Mayan temple, albeit one covered in weeds and crumbling to pieces. The tales of the individual characters were also swapped around, and two out of the three Greek characters were largely excised from the narrative. Carter Smith was keen to shoot as much of the film as possible in practical locations, only relying on a studio shoot when filming on location would prove impossible. While the novel and screenplay was set near Cancun, Mexico, it was determined that Queensland, Australia would be logistically easier, cheaper and safer than a Mexican shoot. DreamWorks negotiated with Queensland's Pacific Film and Television Commission to secure additional funding and taxation breaks for the production. The base of the hill and the hilltop where the stranded tourists would spend the bulk of the film, were actually two completely separate locations in Springbrook National Park. While the base provided sufficient room for horseback stunts and strong visuals of a lush jungle, the top of that hill didn't provide an attractive enough background of treetops. Scenes of the hilltop were therefore shot atop a completely different hill, with editing used to seamlessly link the two locations together. Sean Ashmore explained... Working on any practical set is far better than working on a stage with a green screen. On real locations you can see the sky, you can feel the breeze. Construction of the temple section on the top and bottom of the hill took about seven weeks to complete, and scenes inside the temple underneath the hill were shot in a soundstage at Warner Brothers Movie World Studios. As the film was set in the Mexican summer, but shot in the Australian winter, actors were sprayed with a combination of water and olive oil to simulate sweat. All of the outdoor scenes were shot with natural light to enhance the realism of the picture. The acclaimed Iranian cinematographer Darius Konji, whose past credits include The City of Lost Children, Seven, The Beach and Panic Room, was signed on as the director of photography. For this veteran filmmaker who had worked with a varied range of directors from Woody Allen to Wong Kar Wai, the ruins presented a fresh challenge. I love the idea that the horror element exists openly in the heat of the aggressive sunlight, Konji explained. This approach is the antithesis of concealing with darkness and providing glimpses that reside in the audience's subconscious. When there are no shadows, there's nowhere to hide. Konji shot the bulk of the film in natural light, running at least two handheld cameras at all times. This gave the film a realistic, gritty feel, and it further enhanced the tension. One of the greatest challenges facing the production was the antagonist, a hill full of deadly prehensile vines. Carter Smith said, My initial reaction was, gosh, how are we going to do this? I mean, a killer vine in a book is one thing, but film audiences are more likely to question and challenge that. Well, the veteran designer and concept artist Patrick Totopoulos was hired to develop a visual aesthetic for the vines. Totopoulos had built an impressive career out of creature and robot design since the early 1990s and had worked on such films as Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla, Pitch Black and iRobot. The decision was made not to rationalise or explain the deadly plant's existence or how they had evolved. The vines' movements were developed by observing time-lapse recordings of the growth of pumpkin vines. And ultimately, a 12-person team, led by production designer Grant Major, best known for his work on Lord of the Rings, sculpted and produced the plants that were seen on screen. Joe Anderson said, Not only do the vines look really great, but they really helped with our performances. They complete this three-dimensional space, making it look real, feel real. While puppetry and animatronics were explored as a means of getting the more aggressive tendrils to move, digital animation was ultimately utilised to give them as realistic and threatening a series of movements as possible. For the film's rapidly growing array of graphic injuries and infections, prosthetic makeup was used wherever possible. For a particularly graphic sequence where Matthias's legs were amputated, the makeup team, led by Jason Baird, observed autopsy videos and also experimented with sections of animal meat. Baird explained, We got real lumps of raw meat and watched how it moved and sagged and hit the ground. 
and we mixed and matched various chemicals, silicones and foams until they mimicked the real thing. The amputation scene was ultimately so graphic that the production was required to submit the finished scene to executives at DreamWorks to approve for release. The combination of digital animation, graphic, makeup, and sickening sound design created one of the most confrontational studio horror films of all time, something which pleased Carter Smith a great deal. Horror movies, he said, are one of the only genres in which audiences experience a very physical, visceral reaction to what they're seeing on screen. He added that, for me, the best way to give the audience that release was to establish a very real world with very real characters, tease them with tension, then show glimpses of the most realistic horror I could produce. And if all of that aligns and the audience experiences a physical reaction towards the film, then I think we've achieved our goal. The production shoot concluded in July 2007. The ruins opened in American cinemas on the 4th of April 2008, opposite the family film Nims Island and the George Clooney comedy Leatherheads. Despite launching in more than 2,800 theatres, the film only managed to reach 5th place at the US box office, with an opening gross of about $8 million. First week grosses scarcely topped $10 million. In the second week, with fresh competition from horror movie Prom Night and the police drama Street Kings, the ruins slipped to 8th place, grossing an additional $4.5 million in the process. By its third week, it was out of the top 10, and by the end of its domestic run, it had grossed only $17.4 million. It took an additional $5.3 million internationally, resulting in a worldwide theatrical gross of $22.7 million. With much of that money eaten up by exhibitor fees and marketing expenses, the ruins exited cinemas with a significant monetary loss for DreamWorks Pictures. While it would ultimately recoup its costs through home video and TV broadcast licensing, it was not by any financial measure a success. In Australia, the country in which it had been produced, the ruins didn't even make it into cinemas. A planned 17th of April release was pushed back to 31st of July, then 7th of August, and then it was ultimately released to home video in December. The commercial failure of the ruins led to the film being ultimately disregarded by film critics and many horror movie enthusiasts. At the time of its release, the film was also unfairly bundled up with a series of graphic horror movies, including Saw, Hostel and Touristas, films that formed a subgenre dubbed torture porn by the film critic David Edelstein. While the description of such films as torture porn is in itself fairly odious and inaccurate, in the case of The Ruins it seems particularly inappropriate. The Ruins is a masterpiece of what is often described as body horror, horror where the audience's tension and fear is generated by the graphic, unsettling destruction or alteration of the human body. Carter Smith said, At the heart of what's unsettling about this movie is this idea of bodily infection, something that gets into your skin and thrives under the surface. I've been to places like Belize where you hear about the bot fly, which lays its eggs beneath your skin. Thank God I've never had to deal with it. We looked at so many documentaries and YouTube clips of under-the-skin parasites, and they're disgusting. The film begins with a deliberate banality. Four American tourists in their early 20s, lounging around a resort swimming pool in Cancun, and who actually introduce themselves as two best friends and their boyfriends. Through a 15-minute sequence of scenes, we see them lazily chatting by the pool, getting drunk on the beach, and intimating sexual activity. The first sense of horror we witness, aside from the arguably unnecessary prologue, is at the 20-minute mark where the hapless protagonists have come across the titular ruins. They're surrounded by villagers, none of whom speak English, and are forced up onto the pyramid. Dimitri, the sole Greek backpacker to accompany the group on the trip, tries to approach the village leader and gets shot dead by an arrow and a bullet in return. It's a sudden and frightening shift in tone, and it marks an unexpectedly blunt and realistic kind of horror. Everything leading up to Dimitri's death, dull young American protagonist, a creepy ancient ruin, suggests a horror film that will be supernatural, outlandish, and more than a little tacky. Instead, the horror is realistic, it's confrontational and sudden. The next 20 minutes of the film continue in this vein. They can't leave the top of the ruin. 
An attempt to look for Matthias' brother inside the temple results in Matthias falling and breaking his spine. Further attempts to rescue him from the bottom of the pit only result in hurting him further. Somewhere in the bowels of the temple rings an abandoned cellular telephone, but it's too dark for Amy or Stacy to find it. I suspect many viewers will find the four central characters, Amy, Stacy, Jeff and Eric, relatively irritating. They're not particularly sensible. They're not particularly smart. When they rashly attempt to fix a bad situation, such as lifting Matthias's broken body onto a makeshift stretcher, they invariably manage to make things worse. A lot of viewers tend to favour protagonists who are a little smarter and a little braver than ones might be in real life. Take, for example, the runaway success of writers such as Joss Whedon, whose characters uniformly express wit and snarky repartee with the ease of some urbane college graduate. The characters of Ruin of the Ruins are real. They're dumb, ignorant and arrogant. They're prone to panic. They regularly say stupid things. At least one of them undergoes a psychological breakdown over the three days they, they spend on top of the temple. Now, there's always a place for the smart, sophisticated, witty protagonist, but in a film with such blunt real-life horrors, a group of blunt real-life characters somehow seems much more appropriate. After 20 minutes trapped on top of the ruins, the film shifts gear for a second time, with the horrifying realisation that the vines that cover the entire structure are prehensile, invasive and carnivorous. They wrap themselves around our protagonist's limbs. If they find an open wound or even an open orifice, a mouth, a nostril, an ear, they crawl inside. Where the audience's expectations may have once been that the ruins would be some supernatural horror movie and then a violent siege thriller, it now becomes clear that the film is neither of those things. It's a film about contagion, a relentless, constantly advancing organism from which there is no defence, no cure and no escape. The film's greatest masterstroke occurs with the discovery of the ringing telephone. The phone is, it turns out, long since broken. It's the flowers around them that are vibrating, mimicking the telephone's ringtone. In one dread-filled moment, the only lingering hope of escape is cruelly snatched away, leaving Amy, Stacy and their boyfriends to die. The carnivorous vines give the ruins a distinctive difference compared to most American horror films. Generally speaking, American horror cinema presents a clear and identifiable villain. This is particularly true in the 1980s and 1990s, where long-running franchises were developed out of a range of cinematic boogeymen. An identifiable, discreet villain turned American horror films into stories of good triumphing over evil. The villain may be violent and terrifying, but that villain may be defeated, or dispelled, or even destroyed. It is in this respect that The Ruins actually does slot in neatly with contemporary horror films such as Hostel, Saw, and the like. It's survival horror. Something dreadful and appalling happens to a protagonist, and their primary goal is not to defeat that antagonist, but to simply survive it. It's a style of bleak, relentless horror that's been popular in Japan for some decades, and highlighted by late 1990s hits such as Ring, Pulse, Audition, and The Grudge. It has been argued that in many respects, survival horror is a symptom of a mass cultural trauma. In Japan, the double hit of the Great Hanshin Earthquake and the Aum Shinrikyo gas attacks on the Tokyo subway inspired the aforementioned wave of bleak, relentless horror films. In the USA, survival horror hit its stride in the years after the 11th of September 2001 terrorist attacks on New York's World Trade Center. And in many respects, The Ruins is a purer representation of survival horror than those other American films. Because despite the emphasis of survival over victory in both Saw and Hostel still present personable antagonists, The Ruins is much more akin to Eli Roth's Cabin Fever from 2002, in which five college students slowly die from a flesh-eating virus in the middle of the woods. Just like that virus, the vines in The Ruins do not represent a traditional antagonist. They're just plants. They encircle and constrict the characters because they're carnivorous plants and they're attracted to blood. 
They creepily mimic whatever the characters shout or scream because they've evolved to mimic loud noises so as to attract their prey. They're terrifying and deadly, but they're not evil. They're simply plants. No matter how you write it, you can't demonise a plant. When Matthias's broken legs grow septic, Jeff, a medical school undergraduate, insists that they must be amputated. This harrowing, quite graphic scene is representative of the film as a whole. The sequence is realistic and confrontational. In one of the film's most chilling moments, we cut from the amputation to the villagers waiting at the bottom of the hill, listening to Matthias's screams and patiently waiting for the tourists to die. It is significant, I think, that almost all of the violence, torture and trauma put upon the five hapless tourists is ultimately self-inflicted. They're only trapped in this situation because they deliberately chose to visit the temple. Matthias only breaks his spine because they failed to check the integrity of his rope. Stacy deliriously mutilates her own body, and it's Stacy, not the plants, who murders Eric. There's a strong argument to be made once you put aside the trauma, the torture, and the carnivorous flora. The Ruins is actually a film about the hubris of American tourists. They begin the film cocky and full of bravado. None of them speak enough Spanish to sustain a conversation. As soon as their predicament becomes clear, Jeff arrogantly assures the others they will be rescued within a day. Four Americans on vacation don't just disappear, he shouts, as if saying it aloud will make it true. Three days later, and it's only Amy who escapes from the ruins, running through the forest in a hail of arrows and bullets and driving into the distance in Matthias's brother's abandoned jeep. She survived, because in this kind of horror movie, survival's the best that you can do. If you've enjoyed listening to this essay, I invite you to head over to www.fictionmachine.com where you'll actually find the printed out version on text form of this essay, as well as another 20-odd films that I've been reviewing over the past 12 months. And if you like what you read, please click on the top corner of that page and have a look at my Patreon campaign, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support me writing these film histories and analysis in essay form. I'm really enjoying doing it, and I'm hoping that others are enjoying what I'm writing. So check that out at www.fictionmachine.com and have a nice day.